Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all of the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. Welcome to Pride Month. Welcome to Pride Month. And a slightly delayed episode uh, that was supposed to be released on Tuesday. But hey, do you know what? It's worked out for the better because we are... It's the end of an era and we're ending this era where we started it. In yeah. Pride Month. Oh, is that true? It is. Very, it is. Yeah, it is true. Back uh, in Pride Month two years ago, I believe it was, uh, we discussed Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 uh, with Jack from Passage d'Altera. And we are back today to finish the franchise. We've been making our way through them. And we finally bring you Hellraiser Through the Years, Part 5, the final chapter, until the making of one. Um... Yeah. What a journey. It's been tough. <laughs> it's been tough. Fucking hell. I'm glad. We... I'd heard they were bad, but fucking yeah. hell. Yeah, today we're, we're talking about what was the first time watched for me, and honestly, it's just fucking abysmal. Jesus. But, Christ. I mean, spoiler alert, we will be ending on a more positive note than we've ended on the last few Hellraiser episodes. So when we started Hellraiser... Hellraiser through the years. Yeah. The remake wasn't even... Wasn't even made. Made. Wasn't even thought of. No. Or, well... We, it would probably thought we'll of. Get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. There tea, is... Gary. Yeah, there's, there's a few... Uh, there's a few bits of tea to spill in this episode. But first up, um, the question we always ask during our Pride Month episodes, what makes these films queer? Now, obviously, created by Clive Barker, gay icon... Yeah. 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 Were you asking or telling? Uh, asking and telling. Uh, Do you agree? I agree. Okay. I very much agree. And of course, the first Hellraiser film is massively queer. How about Hellraiser 2 is as well? You know, it's very easy to take certain allegories uh, from these films. To be honest, this is the only one we could have done in Pride Month this episode because in between with 3 and 9, they're not very gay. <laughs> no, they're not. And they, they kind of lose what Hellraiser is about, which thankfully is something the remake manages to bring back slightly. And of course, what makes these films queer, massive milestone uh, for the LGBTQ plus community. The remake is the first major horror franchise film to have a trans actress in the lead. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. You know? Yeah, as the horror icon, she's not the lead, but she's the horror icon. But she, the, she, I mean, the she's the lead villain, villain. you know, the yeah, one everyone absolutely. knows, the face on the poster. Uh -huh. It's it's groundbreaking. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, obviously this year, uh, this, this obviously Hellraiser 2022 was straight to video on demand. Evil Dead Rise this year is the first theatrically released major horror franchise film with a trans actor. And it's great to see this sort of progress. Um... Since last Pride Month, you know? Yeah, and it horror in many ways has been a great place to, you know, bring these things yeah. into place uh -huh. and to push these boundaries, break those glass ceilings. Uh -huh. um, horror's always been a great place for that because horror, in essence, is about, you know, 
ex- extremes and yeah. going against the norm and if you understand what I mean, yeah, 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 and going against the conservative mm-hmm. way of things, yeah, and I think it's fantastic. Love to see it. But sadly, before we get to how race of twenty twenty two. There's an elephant in the room we need to discuss. Yeah. A film that is certainly not queer. No. It's How Raise a Judgment from 2018. Judgment spout in a really weird way. J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T without the E before the N. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, I just completely ignored that and spouted correctly. <laughs> oh, that's good. Good for me. Uh, a film that was only greenlit into production because Dimension Films was about to lose the rights to the How Raise a franchise... Uh, the last film, How Raise Re- Revelations, remember that one, hun? I certainly fucking do. <laughs> uh, was released seven years prior to this. Filming took place in Oklahoma, st- uh, starring, starring, sharing a filming location with Children of the Corn Runaway, both films being produced by Michael Lehigh. Um, Children of the Corn, another franchise that probably should have ended by now. Why are they throwing this shit out? Okay, what is that? again, tell us all this time. Dimension Films trying their hardest to cling onto the rights to this franchise. Guys, let it go. Yeah. Fucking let it go. Honestly. I don't I don't understand what the rights mean to them on a day-to-day basis. Just in terms of, you know, why wouldn't they just give up the rights if they're not doing anything with it? If they're not making a profit from it? Or is the merchandising so good that it's worth throwing away money? Yeah. Unless this fucking film made money. Did it make money? It certainly did not. It, it's it, it straight it to really, video, isn't it? Yeah. It, I mean, called. when you look up the sort of thing, you know, why would a studio want to lose rights? One of the most obvious ones is so they can make so they can keep the rights so they can make new films and bring in new audiences. Mm. Who is this film made for? This this film is so lazy. I mean, it's slightly more inventive than Revelations. But at the same time, this ain't going to bring in anyone new. No. And it's not going to satisfy Hellraiser fans either. You know, no. it's, it's just bullshit. And you know what? When this was announced um, and they revealed the guy who played Pinhead last time wasn't coming back, I was like, okay, thank God. Maybe... Maybe this might be good. They released the trailer. You're at the trailer, fucking very flattering to this film. I thought maybe there's a chance it could be good. Honestly, no. It's fucking abysmal. It's awful. I didn't even remember the trailer. We both watched it and said, "Oh wow, Did this we? could yeah, this could be a good one." No, of course not. Written and directed by Gary J. Tunnicliffe, um, who was the writer of Hellraiser Revelations. Ooh. And as you may recall from the last episode, uh, he was the director of Within the Rock, Hansel and Gretel 2002, Jack and the Beanstalk 2009, he did special effects for Feast, Blade, Wishmaster, Sleepy Hollow, and more. Special effects, not, not awful. Yeah. They're, not, they're not terrible. They're not, yeah. They're not terrible. Just better than they, the last one. They are what they are. I, the problem is, when it comes to stuff like that, I... I well, in the moment, when you get to the point where you stop caring, it doesn't matter how good the special effects no, are. No, Really. But Something you, else is so bad. Yeah. Based on characters, of course, by, uh, by Clive Barker. I'm sure he loved having his name associated with that again. Um, budget, 
$350,000. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They really didn't give a shit. They did not give a shit. No. At all. They just needed to cling on to those rights for whatever fucking reason. Yeah. And it was straight to video on demand, of course. Weird industry, isn't it? Film. It really is. It this is franchise really... is... And, and now that we've finished it and we've, we've seen all of the films now, I'm sure we could both agree, this is the worst horror franchise of all time. In my opinion, from the franchises that I've seen, this so I haven't seen like Leprechaun or I haven't seen Puppet Master, Puppet Master or Children of the Corn. Camp is it Camp Blood? No, uh, we haven't seen those franchises. But from the ones that I have seen, this is by far even worse than Paranormal Activity. This is by far the worst horror franchise. It's. it's Dismal. Yeah, I mean, the things with stuff like Camp Blood, those are films being made on a very tiny budget. Mm. Um, you know, they're doing their own thing. It's hard to really say that's a terrible horror franchise because obviously you're going to expect a terrible horror franchise going into it. You watch the first two Hellraiser films. Yeah. There's no excuse. No excuse. The formula has been set up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been set up, put in place for people. The novels exist. Clive Barker has many other pieces of work you could reference. You know, there's so much you can do with this franchise. And up until the remake, between three and nine, it's just all out of the window. Yeah. It's like you go from them trying to make Pinhead a slasher icon like Freddy Krueger to all of the seven remakes that they do. Mm. And then the internet one, which was only more watchable because it was so fucking ridiculous. And then, you know, Revelations trying to remake the first film. It's a mess. It is an absolute mess. And there is no excuse for it to be all over the place. No. I mean, most of it, you can't blame on those pieces of shit that are Weinsteins. Because they were very much there, like, pointing people in certain directions when it came to the sequels for Onwards. Mm. And they, st- they banned Clive Barker from having any involvement yeah. with them. So you can blame them, you know, fully, actually. Not even to a certain extent. It is their fault. It's their fault. If they didn't poke their noses in so much, then maybe we wouldn't be getting to such lows as this, Deader and Revelations. I think it's a difficult one. Like I said, with the film industry, it's a very strange industry because you there are dodgy dealings. There are dodgy dealings. But maybe they're a little more evident. Yeah. Because we enjoy, you know, a lot of other businesses have their dodgy dealings behind the scenes. Yeah. They don't necessarily come out. But this dodgy dealing is on IMDb's trivia page. Yeah. It's evident. It's a bad product. Mm-hmm. And it's, the film industry is one of those strange things. And I'm not saying people should go and ask for a refund. <laughs> but you don't. If you get a bad product, you don't get a refund. No. If I bought this on DVD, I'm disappointed. Yeah. I think it's shit. Yeah. I've been missold yeah. on this because the trailer made it look better. Mm-hmm. I've been missold. If I ordered a McDonald's and it tasted like horse crap, I'd want a refund. Mm. In films, you don't. So they can just throw out any old shit. Yeah. Yeah. 
And if people are intrigued, they are going to buy it, they are going to watch it, and they've thrown their money down the, the yeah. shitter. No, absolutely. Fortunately, by this point, I would, unless, it, apart from for the um, podcast, <laughs> I would never have spent any money. If I'd been watching them consistently, I would have given up probably halfway through. Yeah. I would have, I would have given up. You mentioned the DVD, and I noticed mm. that, you know the trailer kind of made it a lot better than it actually was. The DVD is not fooling anyone. Why the fuck does Pinhead look like a fucking Pez dispenser <laughs> on the front cover? Like it is, it's got a fucking long neck like a giraffe, and then his head just stuck on the end of it. Like <laughs> they're not even trying. No, no. But yeah, and then also another thing I say a lot um, when people complain about franchises um, not giving a shit about the fans and so on and everything, and just releasing films for six. But okay, you know, the film industry is a money making business. People have to keep releasing this stuff to make a living. No one's making any fucking money off no. these films. And they don't give a shit about the fans. So for me, that's just irredeemable. But they must be, they must. There must be something in it to get money from it. So there must be something. But it's not even like it's it that be, much merchandise. It would be in, well, it'd be interesting to know. But if they have the rights, then do they have the rights to all the films? Mm. So when a new deluxe Blu-ray edition of Hellraiser comes out, if somebody, you know, if a new NECA figure comes out, yeah. it's got to be worth something to them. Mm. So I would probably hazard to guess that to them it's worth more than $350,000. Yeah. And therefore it was worth throwing this crap out to, you know, and they probably made some money from it. Not a profit. No. But people did buy the DVD. Some people must have bought, they made at least 10 quid Mm. off it. So it must have been worth their return whether that's through having the rights to all the films yeah. or, you know, the DVD together collectively must have been worth more than $350,000 to them. Yeah. And that's where the business aspect of film comes in. Mm-hmm. And it's a very interesting aspect. I do it find it very fascinating. Um, but as a consumer, yeah, it leaves us this dog turd that we're about to talk about. Yeah. Let's talk about the people who lost their minds and agreed to be in the cast. <laughs> oh, no. I would say, you know, actors... Let's, you know, let's talk about who's in it. Make some money. Well... Let's talk about it in a section we like to call... Hey, hell, I know you. <laughs> Damon Carney uh, is in this as Detective Sean Carter and, spoiler alert, the uh, preceptor. Oh! Star of Logan, right? The Hitcher, two thousand and seven, The Lone Ranger, Jerry Bruckheimer's Chase, The Harrowing, The, the Veil, Chase, and more. Yeah. Um, the producers, at his request, contacted Damon Carney's wife and secretly obtained stories and intense moments from his past that would then, without his prior knowledge, used during the scene when he is audited. At the end of the lengthy and harrowing take where Carney yelled out what the fuck just happened, I genuinely uh, freaked out. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it's 
well, I mean, obviously you don't see that as behind the scenes, but it was because he didn't know any of that was going to be said. Guys, come on, don't don't go to that much effort. It's not worth it. It's really not worth it. Don't don't leak this guy's this guy's secrets just for this fucking film. Why? Why don't you just trust someone to act? I know. This well, is I don't well, well. It, or, or put some more money in the budget and get someone <laughs> who maybe has more experience of acting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just gonna say it now. No one in this film does a good job. It, everyone's, everyone's oh. a bit shit. We'll, we'll get to that. Randy Wayne plays Detective David Carter. He was in To Save a Life, uh, Reagan, The Dukes of Hazard, The Beginning. Yes, there is a prequel to The Dukes of Hazard film. Oh, ew. First Class Fear, Deadly Dawn, Cheer for Your Life, and more. Oh, do you know who's in that um, prequel? Who? Jonathan Bennett. Oh, no. From um, Mean Girls. And uh, Sherilyn Fenn. No. Yeah. <gasps> Doug Jones. What? Yeah. And um, what's his name? Willie Nelson. Well, he was in the uh, main one. The, well, he was the... in the music video with Jessica Simpson. No, he's in the film. Oh, is he? Yeah. I've never seen it. He's dead <sighs> taste. <laughs> well, I brought you on DVD for Christmas one year, so... Uh... <laughs> He did. You need to watch it. And I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I'll be really upset if you don't watch it. Uh, I have seen it. It is awful. Alexandra Harris plays Detective Christine Egerton. Yeah. She was in All Light Will End, The Veil, uh, I'm Dying Up Here, (laughs) watching this franchise, A Thousand Tomorrows, The Soulmate Search, Collar Rivalry, and more. Right. Never heard of them. Heather Langenkamp. Oh, who's that? Is in this as the landlady, of course. You'll know her as the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 1, 3, and New Nightmare, just the 10 of us, the Midnight Club, the Demolitionist, and more. Uh, she's given third villain in the opening credits. She's only on screen for 45 seconds. Yeah. Well, you, you would, though, wouldn't you? If, if, if you had to have a Langan camp in your film for five seconds, <laughs> that's honestly just as bad as to be Hedron in Birdemic. <laughs> no, not really. I don't think Tippy Hedren. I think I think Tippy Hedren's worse because I don't actually think she agreed to be in Birdemic. She was forced into it. At least Lev Heather Langenkamp. She must have signed some sort of contract oh. for a forty-five seconds. I I really hope she got paid a decent amount for it. At least a new fridge. <laughs> and. Uh... Paul T. Taylor. <laughs> Paul T. Taylor plays Pinhead. Yes. Paul T. Did. Taylor, star of Sin City, Alternative Math, Super, Andromeda, uh, The Torturer, Night Night, The Purge TV series, Sick for Toys, Love and Repeat, and more. So, fun fact when Doug Bradley, the original Pinhead, was asked in an interview what his advice would be to Paul T. Taylor, who plays Pinhead, uh, he sarcastically answered, well, according to Gary J. Tuncliffe, Mr. Taylor has the screen presence of Peter Cushing and Ray Fiennes, so he wouldn't, so he won't need any help from me, will he? <laughs> <laughs> Is that an actual quote? An actual quote. An avid uh, Doctor Strange fan, uh, Gary J. Tuncliffe, 
He uh, sculpted the symbol of the famed Eye of Agamotto into the new version of Pinhead's leather robes, as well as adding a diamond-shaped skin section in honor of Leviathan in the in the torso, uh, as well as long uh, threadbare robe and real metal chain mail, butcher's apron to the ensemble. Um, what a waste of time that was. Yeah. I mean, it looks shit. Yeah. It, it, it really looks naff. It looks, it, you know, carving your Doctor Strange symbol into it hasn't made a bit of difference, mate. It looks like fucking you've been to a fancy dress shop and got Howriser costume because they couldn't get the rights. <laughs> Paul T. Taylor described playing Pinhead as a dream come true. According to Taylor, uh, he said, Pinhead was always my favourite horror icon because he was the most twisted and intelligent in my mind. The American actor used a false British accent when portraying a character. Oh, I didn't notice. <laughs> Due to his belief that Pinhead has to be British. Gary J. Tunnicliffe uh, gave Taylor room to create his own interpretation of Pinhead as Taylor brought an intentional vulnerability to the role. Oh. In addition to prior knowledge, Taylor used Hellraiser comic books as preparation for the film. God bless you, Paul T. Taylor. Paul you T. Taylor. Time. I mean... <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's a shame, really. You really thought he was doing something here. Yeah, it's a shame, because it does kind of sound a little like... The people involved were fans of the franchise, or at least the first one or two films. And they've been given a micro-budget, really, and they tried their best, but it, it didn't It didn't work out. Well, do you not think he has the screen presence of Peter Cushing and Ray Fiennes? Um, no. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk some more about that for our first feature presentation. There's hell to pay. We start in Hal, get straight to it. <laughs> we end in Hal. We're going to be there for the next hour and 18 minutes. Um, or what is meant to be Hal <laughs> on a <laughs> shoestring budget. Someone's uh, spare room. Pinhead from yeah. the Cenobite sect and the auditor of the Stygian Inquisition are discussing how to adapt their methods of harvesting souls in the face of advancing human technology. That is making the configurations, gateways to hell, obsolete. Uh, the makeup for the auditor was originally a concept pitch for a reimagined pinhead look. Mm. The cosmetics were shown to the studio when Hellraiser was originally optioning a full reboot. When a direct sequel was decided instead, they kept the designs and recycled them into this new character. And I fucking hate this character. I hate this This character. first scene is obnoxious. Just the two of them talking shit. Absolute shite. So, oh, hell, 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 hell. That's all it is. The first... The first lines of the film are Pinhead 
as he holds and solves the lament configuration, saying, <laughs> obsolete, irrelevant in an age when desire has become... <laughs> and that's just this these fucking sequels. Obsolete and irrelevant, Very all of fitting. them. Very fitting. In an age when desire has become amplified, but where lust can be sated electronically, we need something more than just a wooden box. The auditor says, there is a mechanism. The house is ready. We can adapt. Pinhead says, technology may have advanced, but sin remains unchanged. Pure, greed, lust, lies, betrayal. The auditor, the new millennium hurtles forward. Faith is lost. Mankind have become a vacuum without morality. So many souls seeking new and darker experiences. Degradation upon degradation. Sin after sin. To which Pinhead replies, So then those are the souls we shall seek out first. <laughs> They're not even just talking to each shit. other. It's just random words. They're just talking shit. I kind of get what they mean. But I don't. Because it's so fucking <laughs> long-winded. It's just bullshit. Carl Watkins is invited. I just did way more justice, by the way. <laughs> you did. It sounded did. really good. I heard, thought I did a great I, job. I think you had the screen presence of Peter Cushion, to be honest. Well, okay. Yeah, I can live with that. Carl Watkins. What is about in... Ray Fiennes? Not quite. We'll wait for later quotes. Well, um, I think we mean like Voldemort. Carl Watkins is invited to speak with the auditor. Um, he's strapped to a wheelchair and the auditor asks him various questions about his past. Some sweaty guy has the... Uh, now, in, in a bizarre series of events, but I, I feel like I'm giving the film far too much credit by saying it's bizarre because this next five minutes or so is trying so desperately to be edgy that it's not even shocking. It is just... It just made me roll my fucking eyes. I, again, they've completely misunderstood what makes the Hellraiser franchise work by throwing in a bunch of stuff that they think will shock people. He has the tears of children in a jar, then eats a plate of paper in great detail before throwing it all back up into a bucket with a tube attached to it. The vomit falls into a tray where three half-naked girls with cut-up faces rub their hands through it and tell the auditor to kill Carl. That's just, like, so unnecessary. Yeah, and it's from a trough, isn't it? And they, yeah. they're kind of eating the puke themselves. Yeah, it's like, come on, what are you doing? What's most horrifying is that the guy eating the paper is a older man. He's a heavy set man. Yeah. He's got an open jacket with no shirt on underneath, which is horror one oh one. Yeah. Absolutely obviously. disgusting. Obviously. Disgraceful. Yeah, this this man was only employed because he's overweight and they this think is, that, and, and they think that's disgusting. Yeah. I think what they're trying to get I've never seen the films, I don't really intend to. Human centipedes? Not quite. No. No. But I in that same it vein, had that um, the look of it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's in the same. Yeah, no. When you meant, yeah, when you put it like that, that's true. It, it has got that sort of filter to it. That sort of um, dirty, gritty filter, um, <clears throat> which looks ugly as fuck. By the way, and not in a good way. Mm. Um, it's just they're, they're trying too hard. Pinhead is not trying too hard, however. Uh, he sits back in his chair and has a think about life. Now, I hope you enjoyed that shot, because you're going to get it again soon. <laughs> Carl is strapped to a table. He is. A group of women start eating his clothes off. They do. 
A demon uh, crying with a baby's voice. These are older women, but still half naked. Yeah. The horror of it. All. I know, right? Um, a demon crying with a baby's voice walks in, and uh, there's lots of clothing there. There's clearly something being hidden. There's a mask on as well. The surgeon uh, in leather with a gas with a gas mask uh, appears out of the demon's back and slices at Carl's skin with two blades. They then remove the skin, and the three half-naked women from before are covered in Carl's blood. And that's the opening of the film. That's the opening of the film. The the women, li- I thought they were licking him, but I don't know what they were doing. They were eating his clothes off. They were eating his clothes off. Well, they said, you must be clean on the inside too. Whatever that means. We get the opening credits on burning pieces of paper with the shit score playing whilst the order to type stuff. Ooh. The, the score in this. It's really bad. How do you go from a film with one of the greatest horror scores of all time to this? Yeah. Just copy it, for fuck's yes, sake. Yes, just copy it. You own the fucking rights. Yes. Yeah. Just fucking copy it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, meanwhile, on Earth, a drunk girl called Crystal um, is getting out of her Uber. She's like, ah, oh, Uber black my ass. You're just a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. I don't, I don't think we get Uber black in the UK. I feel like it's... The it's the posh one. version. No, it's the posh version. So it's the nice, like I don't know, the comfort one. Tesla, or like yeah. Range Rover. <laughs> is that what? I, yeah. Is that what comfort? Is? I thought comfort meant more legroom. No, just like leather seats and shit like that. Oh, okay. She goes to her apartment and finds a bunch of candles uh, set up, which she blames on a guy called Josh, who she wants a quickie with, and she says. I'm drying up real fast here. This weirdo in the dark thing is only a turn on for a few minutes. Yeah, you know I hate unattended candles in films. Don't I? You do. A guy appears out of nowhere and hits her. And she's like, oh, what do you want? And he's like, to make a lesson out of you. Yeah. Right. Three detectives. Brothers uh, Sean and David Carter and Christine Egerton... Uh, oh, I've got in my notes pronounced Edgerton. Apologies. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for a little reminder there, Pascari. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> investigate a serial killer known as the Preceptor, whose murders are based on the Ten Commandments. Oh, that sounds familiar. Mm. Where, where have we heard this before? Murders Could this be another, another uh, seven fan script turned into a Hellraiser film? Very well be. Um, Sean is the quiet brooding type, yeah. But believes the murders remind him of a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens. <laughs> he refers to it as the best-selling novel of all time, which didn't sound true. No, I I had to Google it. I was like, that doesn't sound <laughs> right. And it's true. It's true. It is true. It oh, is wow. true. A tale of two cities. Is the best-selling novel of all time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's random. It, it. That's. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I was going to say something, but I won't say it. Oh no, I'm going to say it. That's assuming we consider the Bible a work of <laughs> non-fiction. <laughs> I'm sure that's a big seller. Um, they realised that the... <laughs> I did put in my notes. Who knew how Razor Judgment would turn into a learning moment? I know. Oh, a tale of two C's. 
And uh, you might think, oh, Chris, why do, why do you keep bringing up A Tale of Two Cities? Because the fucking film will continuously yeah. bring up A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> they realise that the preceptor placed Crystal's dog in her stomach and stitched her stomach up after. They take the dog out. And again, it doesn't deserve a bizarre series of events. It's, it, again, just trying so desperately to be shocking. The baby, the dog was her baby. So he put it in her womb. <laughs> You know the writer sat there like, damn, that's that's fucking that's deep. Really, yeah, that's really gonna get the audience going. Do you want? Oh, do you know what? It's twenty eighteen. I reckon people have forgotten about seven. <laughs> should we just should we just say two thousand? Go on. Sean goes home to his wife Alison. It's her birthday, and she's sitting alone in their disgusting-looking kitchen with a cigarette and a glass of wine, and she's there like. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> she's drunk, she's fuming, and she's camp. She is. She is. Um, yes. Someone gets... <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's camp by desire, no. 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 But, I mean, I have just described you on your birthday. Well, thank you. <laughs> Someone gets their tooth pulled out by the preceptor, who also saws their arm off. The detectives find blood in jars, seven arms, and teeth in the park. And then yeah, so they find it on at the playground, and uh, Chris is it Christina? She says, "Christina, oh, Christine, Edgerton, Edgerton, yeah, yeah, Edgerton." Yeah, yeah. She says, "An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth." Which again means absolutely nothing. <laughs> means nothing. Oh, and I question why is it just the three of them at the park? Yeah, why are where are the other police? <laughs> Why hasn't the area been taped off? <laughs> a guy should know what's really edgy. Severed body parts in a child's playground. Yes. And budget constraints. Uh, we get the same shot of Pinhead sitting back in his chair and thinking about life. <laughs> oh, why did I decide to be in this film? That was me when I was like, why did I decide to watch this film? Oh, wait, I didn't. <laughs> Somebody chose it for the podcast. Well, episodes. we had to get through it. Yeah. A connection with one of the victims leads to uh, leads the detectives to Carl Watkins from the start of the film, who we learn was a local criminal and pervert. We find out he went missing when the detectives go to his house and are greeted by none other than horror icon Heather Langenkamp in cheap leopard print clothes. Yeah, they very nonchalantly discuss how the local girls' school had filed a restraining order against Carl. For jerking off whilst work watching the gym classes. Yeah. But they're very nonchalant about it. Uh-huh. So uh, this makes me think at the beginning when the auditor and Pinhead were chatting shit. Mm-hmm. That they were basically saying, well, what we're going to do is get people who deserve it. I mean, yeah, so then... Which is in keeping with, with the Saw. Ten Commandments <laughs> thing and the Saw thing, and it's all really muddled. But less about that, more about Heather Lang. Yeah, she says, he's not in. That cocksucker owes me two months rent. He has been here for a couple of days. And they're like, oh, well, he, he, maybe he's hiding inside. So if he is, he'll be freezing his ass off because I cut his power yesterday. <laughs> and then they start talking about what he's doing there. She's like, honey... What those boys are doing in there, no one knows anything about it. <laughs> and that's it. And She's that's gone. It. That's it. She rocks up in, like Gary said, the cheapest looking leopard print blouse. <laughs> she serves high camp. She does. And fucks off. The best thing about the film. Best thing about the film. 
Um, let's not get it twisted, though. <laughs> Hasn't affected the star rating. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the best thing about the film. It is. It is. We, we do love a bit of Heather. Love um, a bit of Heather Langenkamp. She will be back later this year. Ooh! His apartment is a dump. And <laughs> Why, we're covering Nickel Mountain? <laughs> His uh, apartment is a dump, and they find a lot of porn in there, to which Christina says he has quite the right arm. Doesn't seem like the preceptor type. What does that even mean? (laughs) Why do you think the preceptor doesn't have a strong right arm? (laughs) He sawed someone's fucking arm off. (laughs) But the whole idea is that the preceptor is killing based off of the Ten Commandments. That he's killing people that he thinks are sinning. So if somebody um, gives themselves a treat too often, then they're sinners. <laughs> right, okay. Sean goes back to Carl's house and searches his MacBook for his uh, last seen location. He goes to the abandoned house where Carl met the auditor. He loses consciousness and wakes up in a Stygian Inquisition's domain in hell. Sean discusses various incidents from his life with the auditor and informs him that only God can judge him. So forget all the haters because somebody loves you. Miley Cyrus. <laughs> um, also, this is the big scene where he was spilling the tea on his real life stuff. Honestly, I switched off. I couldn't give a oh shit. Oh my God. I, I really, literally I really have in my notes. Care. They talk absolute shite. I genuinely could not give a fuck. His life clearly isn't that interesting. So we find out... and. Whoa. What? Well, I got a few tidbits from Did you get it down? No. But I did figure out that we find out Sean was in the military and killed many people during service. Uh, Oh. Oh, oh dear. I did put... They're really trying to say something here, but I feel... That might just be about the actor. Whatever it is, is lost on me. Um... Yeah. Oh, wow. Ooh. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Ew. If that is true, then can you imagine, like, showing up to work one day and they're like, oh, do you remember that time you killed a lot of people? Yeah. That'll get a reaction out of him. That's not cool. That's really bad. Ew. The paper-eating dude tries to eat paper again, but starts bleeding and crying. Why? I'm not so sure. Um, well... <laughs> and that's it. That happens. It leads to, uh... The camp angel, Jophiel, in a white pantsuit, who intervenes <laughs> and tells them to release him. Yes, this Hellraiser film has angels as well as demons. Um... Let's be clear, cheap white pants. <laughs> and with nothing underneath the jacket. No. Which isn't very angelic. <laughs> because, spoiler alert, she's on the killer's side. Yeah. Who's killing based on the Ten Commandments. Uh huh. So, is it. How holy is it to. Not wear anything under your jacket. I mean, if it wasn't so cheap, it would be a serve. Yeah. <laughs> a little more expensive gone into it. She thought it. it was, though. She really thought she was fucking slaying. It would It would be a serve, but it's not very angelic. No. 
And doesn't we don't get to see it for long anyway until later on in the film. Well, Sean gets the same licking as well, doesn't he? He does. That's carded earlier. But now they spit into small bowls and feed it to him. Mm-hmm. Again, saying that he should be clean on the inside too. Yawn. <laughs> Literally yeah. yawn. Yawn. Boring. Sean uh, escapes the round with a stolen lament configuration. And the order to request Pinhead's guidance on the matter. I was like, oh, can you just give me some advice here? Um, I kind of got away. An angel showed up. Not good. Uh, Pinhead is on his chair again. Yeah. In the same room as Chatterer. So the sound effects there, like teeth constantly moving. When it shows you him, his teeth aren't moving. No. Don't bother. If you're not going to make his teeth move, don't bother putting him in the film. The twin Cenobites from Hellraiser Inferno are there and they just, they're, they're, they're there. And Pinhead just can't be asked. Oh, go on, Pinhead, give us nothing. He literally tells the auditor they don't need to go looking for him because they'll find, he'll find them eventually. Eh, let's just relax. Don't worry. Don't, don't get her eventually. Don't I'm enjoying worry. sitting down. Yeah, just calm down. <laughs> He's screen presence of Ray Fiennes and fucking Peter Cushion. The guy does nothing. He does nothing. He's got the screen presence of an aubergine. <laughs> and that's being generous. Sean and his brother... Oh, wait, does that mean dick in emojis? Yeah. yeah Sean and his brother mean... return to search the house, finding no trace of Hal or the Inquisition. That night, he's haunted by visions of the Cenobites. At first, he has a dream where they're putting a mask on him and pouring wax on it. For some Whoa. reason. Then he sees Alison as a Cenobite when they're having sex. <gasps> then Hal's uh, denizens knock him out on the street. And... One thing I... I know it. Sorry to interrupt. But one thing that really annoys me is these sex scenes in films. The one, why is the sex scene here? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is the purpose? I mean, technically, it's Hellraiser. There should be more sex scenes. There should be. But then he jumps out of bed straight away when she looks like a Cenobite. Mm-hmm. But he's in his underwear. <laughs> so I don't know why she was enjoying herself that much. Because... Well, I don't know. He must be very good at foreplay. <laughs> um, he gets knocked out on the street and uh, he's promised judgment and redemption to anyone who opens the box. Sean informs his brother that only God can judge him. <laughs> yeah. Can anyone smell a twist? Sean and Christine go to the coroner's office and uh, find that a cell phone of one of the preceptor's victims was stored in her body, recording her final location with its GPS. Well, David finds Sean's copy of A Tale of Two Cities with phrases (laughs) similar to the preceptor's wordings highlighted. Um, After this cell phone, final location... You got a dialogue? No... Christine, do you get Christine questioning him? No, but I get her saying, serial killer caught by smartphone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before this, Christine questions Sean on the way there, on the the way there, about his love for novels. And again, he only actually mentions A Tale of Two Cities. And I feel like A Tale of Two Cities has been partly chosen to replace the Bible. (laughs) As the filmmakers may have feared ruffling some Christian feathers. They couldn't get the rights to the Bible. But then there's also a few references to the Bible directly later on. (laughs) And the whole Ten Commandments thing. 
So I'm really not sure why A Tale of Two Cities. It is, admittedly, a novel I'm not familiar with. Mm -hmm. All I know is it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people only know that quote from it, Uh despite it being the best-selling novel of all time. So it's the reference is going to go over a lot of people's heads. Yeah. So why is it there? (laughs) Right. Well, they find the Perceptor's hideout where Sean incapacitates Christine and reveals himself as the killer by showing her a picture of David sleeping with Alison. David deduces the Perceptor's identity and meets with the coroner to find the building. Upon arrival, Sean disarms David and Alison. Um... She's there as well, who also arrives. Uh, and he gives them the world's most fucking boring speech about how much he hates the modern world. So, like, oh my God, just kill me. Just Honestly, just put me out of misery. Oh, he's like, everyone on their mobile phones. I loathe the modern world. Everybody hates me. <laughs> and I hate them. He forces David and Alison to open the box at gunpoint, summoning the Cenobites and opening a gateway to their realm. Aware that someone from Howe would come to collect his soul after his initial escape, Sean attempts to offer Alison and David to Pinhead. And uh, Pinhead says, I knew you'd find me eventually. After all, evil recognises evil. (laughs) Game recognises game. Um, How did David know straight away how to open the box? Like, Sean just tells him to open it and he starts rubbing the top in a circular (laughs) motion with his thumb. But, like, straight away. He doesn't even, like, mess about with it like they do in previous films, trying to figure it out. Straight away, from on top, circular motion, done. May I remind you, in one of the call. other films, it's just thrown on the floor and opens itself. That is that is. By this point true. in the franchise, it is the, most e- it's the easiest thing to fucking open. It, it is. was strange seeing it in the remake, people putting effort into opening it. Yeah, it is, and, but I feel like for the whole franchise... It's not really been a puzzle box. No. Because it kind of just happens by itself the majority of the time. Or just, like, you... It's a puzzle box, but you, like, press something and everything mm-hmm. happens. And you're like, that's not really a puzzle, my dear. Um, Pinner tells them they'll be dealt with uh, for opening the box. But because a uh, separate faction of Hal wanted his soul, no deal will be made. Did Alison <clears> even <throat> touch the box? No, she was just there. Like, she was just there. The other one opened it. The auditor appears, telling Sean the Inquisition has found him guilty of his sins. And then that bad bitch, Joe Field, comes back and uh, protests to Pinhead and the auditor that Sean is part of Heaven's plan to instill fear into sinners. Ooh. Pinhead arranges for Christine to kill Sean um, and spitefully murders Joe Field with his chains, tearing her apart. After she says, Jesus wept. <laughs> oh. So they have watched the first but one. But they have. There is a lot of time where they're talking to just talking absolute shit. Yeah, this is like an angel versus Pinhead, and it's literally just a conversation. Yeah, no, it's it's literally pain, pain, you don't know the meaning of the words. <laughs> Suffer, you will suffer. No, you will suffer. No, you will suffer. Oh, (laughs) suffer. Oh. If you're going to go as as far as doing something as stupid as bringing an angel in to to face off against Pinhead, 
You better camp that shit up. You better have her oh. firing electricity bolts out of her hands. Yeah. You know, make it fucking stupid. It's a stupid idea. But no, it is literally just a conversation. Then he rips her apart. Oh, okay. And then the auditor's like, um, oh, you probably shouldn't have done that. And as punishment, God makes Pinhead watch this film from the beginning. <laughs> uh, no, sorry. He uh, expels Pinhead from hell and forces him to walk the earth as a mortal man in a hilariously awkward final scene. Like, no, no. It feels a bit iffy, though, because not only does he have to live as a mortal man. He's a homeless man. But a homeless man. Yeah. And I was like, mm. Really? Well, is that what we're doing? It doesn't end there because in a post-credit scene, Ooh. a group of Mormon missionaries in Germany approach a house and are captured by the Stygian Inquisition, and uh, we hear the order to say two, and it isn't even a Tuesday. <laughs> Why? Why? Why is the fucking order to reference in Domino's? <laughs> Why? Why does this scene exist? What is it for? Why are they living? The in sequel. Why are they living in Germany? I know. Why is the house in Germany? Why now? is the house in Germany? <laughs> why is Pinhead <sighs> not in Germany? That's Harry's judgment, and that is the end of the franchise before it is rebooted. Yes, thank God. Talk about amateur hour. Really? Just, what even was that? Absolute fucking waste of a film. Like, waste of people's time and effort. It's just a mess. It's a disaster. It is a disaster. It really is. It's so... It's boring. Yeah. But even the parts that are meant to be edgy are really Mm -hmm. boring. It's only discussing it now... For the podcast, I realised how little actually happens in that film. Yeah. Like, yeah, it is. If there's one, well, two good things about the film, and it's still not enough to warrant a higher uh, star rating, but um, if there's two good things, it's Heather, and it's the fact that it doesn't go an hour and a half. Yeah. At least it has the decency <laughs> to be an hour and 20. I wish that was just 20 seconds. Because it really is just a complete waste of time. Uh-huh. It it bears almost no resemblance to Hellraiser. Yeah. The first film. And I talk about the first film because the first film is, is Hellraiser. Just copy that shit yeah. time and time again. Yeah. And I'd be entertained. You don't have to go wild in the aisles and grab a bit of Seven and grab a bit of... Um, human centipede. Grab a bit of saw. Yeah. Grab a bit of this, that, and the other. It's not necessary. It's not. Oh, it's not. It's absolute fucking bottom of the barrel trash. It is. I'm sorry. And yeah, for ratings, I give it one angel pantsuit out of ten. I give it one tale of one city out of ten. <laughs> Masterpiece trash. Be trash. A basic. It is no surprise that it is trash. Trash. It is trash. Uh, it's available on DVD, Blu-ray and video on demand. You know, some great films have still not had a Blu-ray release. And this film has. Blu-ray? Yeah. No. If you enjoyed this, check out Seven. Because seriously, if you're still going through the franchise, stop watching the shitty detective sequels. Watch Seven or watch Saw. Yeah, I basically said, uh, if you enjoyed this, check out any of the other god-awful sequels <laughs> in the franchise. So I'm not the only one that has to suffer. 
Sofa, you don't know the meaning of the words. <laughs> and that brings us to the final Hellraiser film as of today. Hellraiser 2022, the remake. So this does have an history. Yeah, I can imagine. In October 2006, Clive Barker announced through his official website that he would be writing the script for the forthcoming remake of the original Hellraiser film to be produced by Dimension Films. In October 2007, Julian Mori and Aliandre uh, Bastillo were eye to direct. By January 2008, the project then titled Clive Barker Presents Hellraiser was delayed to an unspecified date in 2009 following the studio's dissatisfaction with Maury and Bustillo's script. Okay. In February 2008, Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton were tapped for a page one rewrite and production was gearing up to begin that spring. By June 2008, the directing pair had dropped the project to work on Halloween 2. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Ah, yes. In October 2010, Dimension Films announced via Variety... Not the Jamie Lee Curtis Wig one. No. Okay. That Todd Farmer and Patrick Lucier would be taking on this project of My Bloody Valentine fame. With productions... Ooh, that's good. Yeah. With productions slated for the new year ahead of a late 2011, early 2012 release. However, in 2011, Farmer confirmed that both he and Lucia were dropped from the project. May I remind you, How Razor Revelations was released in 2011. And yeah. And they thought dropping, you know, experienced horror filmmakers in favour of something like that was a good idea. Yeah. In October 2013, Barker announced that he would be directing and writing the film himself and Doug Bradley was to return to his role as Pinhead. A year later... Barker stated that a second draft of the script was completed and described the film as a very loose remake of the original film, but said that he may not direct the film after all. In March 2017, Barker said that the film's script was written and delivered to Dimension years ago. That was the last anyone heard anything of the Hellraiser franchise until the announcement of Judgment was made. So they just did not get back to him. Yes. Um... I feel money is involved in this. And maybe Clive Barker's uh, fee Mm -hmm. was rather larger than they had wanted. Yeah. And maybe the um, budget, potential Uh budget, would be a lot larger than they had anticipated. So they decided to throw out Giant. Which is so stupid because this is, especially with um, Todd Farmer and Patrick Lucia, because this is around the time they did My Bloody Valentine 3D and Drive Angry 3D. They were also very much looking at doing a Halloween 3D from carrying on from the Rob Zombie films. So if if they were so desperate to keep making these 3D films at that time, 3D Hellraiser, Clive Barker involvement, directors of My Bloody Valentine 3D, that's a fucking guaranteed hit. That's going to make money. Yeah, My Bloody Valentine, did that make money? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's guaranteed to be a big hit, but no, they decided to go with Revelations and Judgment instead. But then the All Roads led to 2022 Hellraiser, directed by David Bruckner, who did The Signal, Talk Show, The Amateur Night segment in VHS, Southbound, The Ritual, two episodes of The Creep Show TV show, 
and the night house now obviously we weren't fans of the night house or the ritual so a little nervous about this film oh wow no we weren't no it's also written by his writing partners ben collins and luke piotrowski who both wrote super dark times the night house stephanie siren too cool for school this must be the old fantasy so i mean i say writing partners they made the night house with him um also written by David S. Goya, the writer of the Dark Knight trilogy, Dark City, Flash Forward, Man of Steel, Blade trilogy, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Demonic Toys, and more. Wow. It always amuses me that the writer of Demonic Toys and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. wrote the Dark Knight. Yeah. Yeah. And the Substitute. Uh-huh. Kickboxer 2. Yeah. Uh, and this film was, thankfully, produced by Clive Barker. Clive Barker had involvement in this film, and it shows. Budget is unknown, and it was straight to video on demand. Honestly, with some of the shit that gets released these days, Pope's Exorcist, I don't know why this didn't get a theatrical release. I, I genuinely think that the, the tale of Hellraiser is... Essentially, the franchise as a whole is essentially a tale of money. Yeah. Not a tale of two seats. (laughs) Not again. Um, But um, a tale of money and things costing too much and then not wanting to invest too much money into things. Yeah. You know, and maybe not... uh, Maybe not having enough faith in Hellraiser as to be able to make money really no no. you know because like I said like we've said it is in my opinion the worst horror franchise yeah it genuinely is and you know that something like a Nightmare on Elm Street remake is gonna make big money yeah number one because Freddy vs Jason had made big money uh huh you know less than ten years before also, it was a tried and tested massive thing. Yeah. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, yeah. Halloween, huge, yeah. huge films. Hellraiser, I mean, straight to video. When did it go straight to video? Or was the last theatrically released one, I believe. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, it was all downhill from there. Yeah. So maybe they just didn't have the faith. For it to go theatrical. No. It's a shame, really, because Evil Dead Rise has come out and made really great money. Yes. And done something that Hellraiser could have done. Yeah. You know? But, you know, there's money to be made in streaming services now. Yeah, it's there is. It's big business. And critically, it's a, it's been a big improvement compared to the other ones. I mean, it's not difficult, but this is a good film. Yeah, yeah, I mean, particularly in comparison to the other sequels. Oh my god, watching it uh, after all the other sequels, sequels, Jesus Christ, it is the biggest improvement. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll, am I right in saying we'll give our rundown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, top of the pops at the end. Yeah. Um. So, this one actually has actors in it. Should we talk about them? Yes, in a section we like to call, hey. I already knew them, but do I know you? 
Um, Odessa Zion plays Riley. What is that after we get her twice in one episode? <laughs> Odessa Zion plays uh, Riley. And uh, she was in Grand Army, Fam, Ghosts, Let's Scare Julie to Death, unfortunately. Oh, the no! The t- Ew! Oh, I hated that film. Yeah, it was shocking. Oh, good Lord. The Tiny Chef Show. God bless her. Super, super Cool, Love, Nashville, Wayne, and more. Nashville isn't a TV series. She's yeah. not that old. No. Um, But she does a great job. She's... She, you know, the quality and acting between this and Judgment leaps and bounds. Yeah, no, yeah, of course. Yeah. And next up, Jamie Clayton plays the priest. Jamie Clayton, star of The Our Word, designated survivor, Sense 8, The Snowman, The Chain, The Neon Demon, Hung, Dirty Work, Hustling, and more. Idea um, of... The pin-covered head Cenobite being female isn't as new as some bigots, uh, sorry, viewers thought. Now, when it was announced that Jamie Clayton was going to be in this, as predicted, the internet was in uproar. Well, a certain side of the internet was in uproar. Yeah. A big side of the internet was celebrating this information. People who are familiar with Hellraiser didn't even batter an eyelid because... And I have now read the novel, but I, so I will be making some comparisons. Um, the original character is genderless, and the closest description we get is to a female. So, what's the big deal, guys? Yeah. Why are you kicking on such a fuss? It's almost like you're all transphobic. Um, I mean, in the original film, Pinhead's kind of wearing a dress. He is. Like, yeah. They're fucking demons. Why did he need a gender? Yeah. Like, seriously. The rest of the Cenobites in this, uh, there's no gender there. No. They, you know, they're, they're just m- moot-related humans, but turn into demons. Then There's no gender. It doesn't matter. No. Um, but yeah, the internet was crying their eyes out um, about it. And, well, it's, uh, it's a certain part of the internet that I don't like to go to. Yeah. But it's like, you know... Which sounds a bit iffy. It's very, well, it is iffy. I mean, it's very predictable. You see posts about this film and Jamie Clayton, you expect the laugh and reacts on Facebook, you go into comments, you know what you're going to find, and it's fucking disgusting. And People really need to get over themselves and stop worrying about things that really don't concern them. This is one of them. Uh, And also, considering uh, Jamie Clayton, phenomenal in this film. Yeah, very, very good. Like, she fits that part perfectly yeah like she is easily and i really like the film she's the best thing about it and i really hope we get to see a sequel with her in it um but yeah in the original novella the hellbound heart the corresponding center by was said to have a feminine voice the only clue to a possible gender a human could perceive um which makes this more accurate to the novel than the first film an interesting the name to be the priest. Yeah, yeah. Clive Barker hated the pinhead name. Really, he hated it. Yeah, because he, he never named the character. That. No. Um. More recently, in the Boom Studios Hellraiser comics, written by Clive Barker himself, Kirsty Cotton ended up turning into a female version of Pinhead. Ooh. Uh, when taking his place as leader of the Cenobites. Wow. Yeah. I would like to have seen that in the. Uh... 
<laughs> six. Halsey. Halsey. Yeah, something like that. Doug Bradley, who uh, originated the role, of course, uh, had this to say about Jamie Clayton's take in a Twitter post. He said, and I quote, I'm a bit blown away by this. The clever redesign of the makeup, the shinner of the pinheads, the palais, the, uh, whatever that keyhole locket thing is at the throat. It's simple, subtle, disturbing and sexy. Everything it should be. And he's right. Yeah. The design for the Cenobites in this film are incredible. It's amazing what we can get with a bit of effort. I really... Okay. Now you brought it up. What? I really like the designs of the Cenobites. Yeah. Particularly the priest. Yeah. I do think that they go maybe against what the original film was about. Yeah. It's not giving me S&M masochistic sadist it's not giving me that kinkiness that the original did what it's giving me is alien what's interesting is the designs of the Cenobites in this film are actually closer to the novel than the original was mm. now I think the original the lever and everything I think that was very much a product of its time and it yeah. works it, well, I, I yeah. you know obviously I think that look is iconic and it is the image of 80s horror. You know, how far people were willing to go. You know, it was, it was a meme. You know, like, uh, we miss when horror icons dress like they're in heavy metal bands in the 80s. And it's a picture of the Cenobites. Um, I I like both. I really like both. And I really appreciate how close they went to the novel with the Cenobites in this film. Because the only thing that they do that involves the novel, apart from the little subplot at the beginning with... Um, the, the uh, Serena character getting people for a boss, a little close to the Julia and Frank thing. Mm. But that original Hellraiser novel, The Hellbound Heart, is Frank, Kirsty, Julia, and Rory, who would go on to be Larry in the film. Yeah. That's what that novel is. That is that story. So yeah. this is n- very far removed apart from the Cenobite designs. Yeah. It's taken a little bit of each, the yeah. novel and the film. I just thought the way that the, the um, Cenobites looked in the original added an extra layer to that It film. did. It definitely did. An extra intrigue. Um, and yeah, and we discussed it in, mm. in the episode, yeah. so I won't go into it now because you yeah. can go back and listen if you haven't well, heard you, it. You'd never seen anything like it. No. At that point. You know, you can see where that... Was it the Stephen King quote? I've seen The Future of Horror. His name is Clive Barker. You can see where it came from. Yeah. You know, it's... Yeah. It's amazing. And, you know, could praise the original film for hours. Um, famous American makeup artist and RuPaul's Drag Race season 13 contestant Got Mick was screened in an audition as the film entered pre-production for the role of Pinhead Having been seen by Bruckner in his Drag Race finale um, extravaganza look that was Pinhead. Yes. While Scott Mick ultimately did not secure the role, uh, like actress Jamie Clayton, both are prominent trans artists and both are amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that would have worked. Yeah. I do. And that look on Drag Race was, that Scott Mick did was yeah, oh, incredible. We love when they do the horror touches yeah. on that. Yeah. Uh, Adam Faison plays Colin. He is in Everything's Gonna Be Okay, Into the Dark, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., 
Wilder Than Her, Daphne and Velma, Here and Now, Ooh. Liberty Crossing, and more. Not Daphne and Velma. Oh, dear. Remember that was a thing? I completely forgot about that. Yeah, it, um, it was a sequel, Daphne and Celeste. Shut up. <laughs> Drew Starkey plays Trevor. Uh, he was in Love, Simon, Screen the TV series, Just Mercy, The Hate You Give, Outer Banks, Mine Nine, The Terminal List, The Devil All the Time, and more. That Calvin Klein advert we watched. Nope, that's not him. That's oh, the final one. Sake. That's Brandon Flynn, who plays Matt, uh, starring oh. the Calvin Klein underwear advertisement. Uh, and also 13 Reasons Why, True Detective, Looks That Kill, Ratchet, Noise, uh, Binge, Brain Dead, and Acting for a Course. I feel like he's been in more than he's actually been in, because I really liked him in uh, 13 Reasons Why. I thought he was really good in that. And oh, I think, okay. you know, he just... Very little screen time in this. Um, but yeah. Uh, we've got Goran Vizdjik. I do apologise. Uh, playing Roland Voigt. So he was most famous for ER. Okay. He was in ER for a very long time. But he's been in loads. Practical Magic, Beginners. He was in Electra. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Ice Age. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, we also have Selena Lowe. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in 28 Weeks Later, Boss Level, The Scorpion King 3, Battle for Redemption. <laughs> and uh, Selena Lowe plays The Gasp. The Gasp? Okay. So... Coming to Courtplex <laughs> in June. Tickets still available. Yes, they are. We'll promote that somewhere at the end of the episode. Is that it? Yes. Well, then let's talk about our second feature presentation. It's time. Their blood. Their pain. All for us. What is it you pray for? Serena Menica, a strong businesswoman who's a lawyer for hedonistic millionaire Roland Voigt, Exchanges briefcases with a man in Serbia. She has money in the one she hands over. and We don't see what's in the other one she's given. She is serving a look. She is. She's, she's, it's, it's giving business. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it was a little more colour, but I can see what they're going with. Definitely going for Julia. Going around the bars. Picking up Because <laughs> that's pretty much what her character is. Ah, oh, a little more fab. Oh, come on. Yeah, she Julia would have put a little bit of yeah. lippy into my shadow on. Well, during a party at Roland Voigt's mansion, sex worker Joey meets Serena and she tells him that Voigt would love to meet him. Yeah, uh, not the most exciting of parties, let's no. be honest. Uh, it's got nothing on Hellraiser Hellworld. That's no, a party. That, that is a party, yeah. Who's... Lance Henriksen is not there. No, <laughs> and um, Superman's not getting a blowy. No, no. Uh, Joey... Superman, who was his name? Henry Cavill. Oh, yeah, Henry Cavill. Oh, okay. Okay. What? So two different people have played Superman, haven't they? Um, in in the Amy Adams films. No. No? No, it's always been Henry Cavill. And who's... What's his name? Oh, was that um, Brandon... Brandon... R- oh, God, that was part of the... Was that original... Amy Adams? No, oh, no. Fucking... There's a franchise that's a Yeah, let's not go there. 
Um, Joey, named uh, as a homage to the douchebag nightclub owner from Hellraiser 3, walks... He is! He is! Oh, is he really? Yeah, <laughs> genuinely. Uh, he walks into a room that looks as though the roof has been designed after the Lament configuration. Uh, he meets Voigt and comes across a mechanical puzzle box, which Voigt insists he solves. Now, it's quite a different design here. Hmm. Um... It's, like, stretched out, but obviously there's a different configuration for each shape that it does. Something we've never really had explained to us in the other films. Not really, but at this at this point it looks like um, Hellbound. Yeah. The big sort of diamond-shaped thing. Yeah. Um, so Joey says, so if I solve it, do I get a prize? And Voight says, I do. Yeah, Voight. Gay? It's definitely reading that way. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think Joey, uh, who's sex worker, yeah, was maybe lured in there in the pretense of uh-huh. being paid yes. for some sex. Yeah, that's that's how it works. Joey solves the configuration and is stabbed by a blade that springs from the box. Voight locks him in the room and a portal opens from which chains fly out and rip him apart. Now, uh, when we first watched this, this did did have me a little nervous because it was very much in the background and you don't see it as graphically as you do in the first film. Um, But, I mean, that's solved later on. Uh, This is a very gory film when it gets into it. But the thing is, at the end of the day, it happens all the time in Hellraiser. It's like, how many different ways can this happen? Yeah. Really... In the first film, it was shocking. In mm-hmm. the second one, a little less shocking. Yeah. So they went other ways. In the first film, less shocking. And, you know, it's been repeated for decades now. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily have to see it. No. I know I know what, what it is. Because this is... I, I don't know... I don't know if you would agree with me, but I don't necessarily think this is a remake for people not familiar with the original. Oh, well, I don't... Uh, I don't think it it's necessarily difficult. is. I, it's difficult, because I feel like anyone not familiar with the franchise can watch this film just as its own thing. Yeah. And wouldn't be lost on it. But, no, not necessarily. But I feel like it is made for the fans. Unlike the sequels, I feel like this was made for the fans. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel that way. Especially uh, with Clive Barker being involved. Yeah. I feel like... There is references to the original that, yeah. you know, will hit differently with, you know, an audience familiar. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily have to see it all the time because no. it, it happens again. Yeah. You know, it, it's probably the only thing, the only way people are killed. Yeah, I mean, really? Yeah. 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 Six years later, recovering addict Riley is living with her brother Matt, his boyfriend Colin, and their roommate Nora. And we're introduced to her while she's having sex with her boyfriend Trevor. So yes, this film has gay people, sex, two sex scenes, and gore. Yeah. It's a Hellraiser film. It's a Hellraiser film. Uh, The sex scenes I have issues with, much like Matt has issues with. Um, because he is annoyed with her, and I don't blame him. No one wants to hear their sibling having sex whilst trying to no. cook dinner. No. With other people in the room. It's highly inappropriate. 
Actually, make that anyone, not just her siblings. <laughs> no, I don't want to hear anyone. If I'm cooking up a delicious dinner, I don't want to hear you banging next door. Oh, that touched a raw nerve. <laughs> Trevor's... It's never ha- it hasn't <laughs> happened to me. But you understand what I mean. Like it's a time and a place, guys. Yes. Yeah. Trevor's introduced <laughs> to everyone who Riley lives with. Matt doesn't like Trevor and is concerned because Riley and Trevor met at a twelve step program. So I mean the whole idea of Riley being an addict, it works in the same way it worked in Evil Dead twenty thirteen. In the way that when this crazy shit goes down, of course people are gonna be like, Well of course you've took something. Like yes, yeah. Like that's, you know, what's happened there, obviously. And I think it gives, uh, spoiler alert, Riley is our, our final girl in yeah. this. It gives her an extra layer yeah. that I think was lacking in other characters. Yeah, definitely. I mean, really, it's something that was, you know, there wasn't much development for Kirsty in the original. No. You know, no. it's nice to have a character with layers. But the original isn't necessarily Kirsty's story, I didn't That's think. true. That's true. It's very much Julia and it, Frank. Julia and yeah. Frank's story. Yeah. Uh, Trevor convinces Riley to help break into an abandoned storage warehouse where they discover and take the puzzle box. Returning home late, Riley gets into an argument with Matt and leaves. Um, Very condescendingly, whilst they're trying to open the safe. Um, what's his name? Trevor says to Riley, there's no way you're going to get it open if I couldn't. <laughs> Fuck you. Well, yeah, I mean, she, she outlives him, so. When she argues with Matt yeah. and leaves, just before that, Matt and Colin are in bed and Colin's reading some Lord Byron to him. Are you sure lives. it's not the two saves? Not a t- it's not a tale of two cities, please. <laughs> please, no. It's Lord Byron. <laughs> and just like, and when I watching it, I was like, okay, this is super gay. Yeah. This ain't even gay. Yeah. This, is like super, this, is... this is shirtless men reading poetry yeah. to each other. This is gay. made for the gays. <laughs> I do think so. This is straight people are going to watch this, and the specific type of straight people are going to turn it off at that scene. <laughs> Um, when they're yeah. arguing, uh, Matt does say, I, I love you to Riley. And Riley says, um, you, you'd love having something to fix so that you can feel better. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is an interesting look at their relationship, yeah. which plays into the finale of the film, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. At an empty park, she solves the box and avoids being cut by the blade. The Cenobites... Uh, appear and the man she chooses uh, another sacrifice. So again, as we mentioned, in place of the Cenobites, cloven in the original franchise being PVC fetish wear and forms of latex, the cloven of the reboot Cenobites, including Pinhead and Chatterer, is their mutilated flesh disjointed into body coverage, separated by their protruding muscle tissue. It was decided by David Bruckner and Clive Barker early on that the Cenobites would appear as they were originally depicted in the novel, um, as both felt the BDSM scene, which inspired the 80s uh, films, was too mainstream now to be as effective as it was in 1987. Okay. Which just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. I'm pretty sure one of them has a very obvious... Vagina. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, well, it's not covering then, is it? <laughs> well, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I really, yeah, again, the designs are great, and this is your first look at them. Um, I feel like the lit, the first time I watched it, I thought it was far too dark. I didn't think it was as bad on a rewatch. Um, it is dark, but I feel like it's lit in such a way where it kind of leaves some of it up to the imagination, which kind of makes it a little creepier. Okay. Yeah. But lit well enough to where you can still see what's going on. Well, they're well lit later on in the film, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Uh, Matt finds Riley blacked out, and as he tries to wake her up, he cuts himself on the box. Oh, no. And he goes to a nearby restroom to clean his wound. Well, he's woken up, isn't he, by yeah. um, chains coming out of um, Riley's chest. And... In I, what I'm assuming is some sort of dream sequence yeah. or something created by the Cenobites, he's woken up. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he, I think subconsciously, he is the one that she has chosen. Yeah. Um, because of their connection and the argument that they had and such. So subconsciously, she is the one... He, he is the one that she has chosen. He goes to find her and then cuts himself mm-hmm. and, you know... That's it. That's the end of Matt. Yeah, he basically. Goes, he goes to a nearby restaurant to clean his wound. Riley hears him scream and discovers that he's vanished. Yeah, with just some blood left in the sink. Which the police say they can't do anything about. Yeah. Riley tells Colin and Nora about the box and what she saw. Uh, Colin just reminds her that he told her not to leave the apartment the night before. And she storms out to go and have sex with Trevor again. But they're interrupted by Chatterer watching them. Yeah. Um, Teeth are actually moving this time. Yeah, yes, that's true. Bigger budget, hun. Um, why does Trevor have such a nice apartment but needs to steal for money? <laughs> Rough and ready character of a really nice apartment. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I wrote that in my notes, but I think that's kind of revealed I think it later. is. Yeah. yeah. Um... Yeah, the sex scene doesn't last very long. Again, really inappropriate. Your brother has just gone missing. Just gone missing. Presumed dead because there's blood all over the, you know, bathroom where he was. And you're getting a quickie in. Well, clearly she's getting some good dick if she's that desperate for it all the time. We see his backside in the shower before. That we do. Again, may I remind you, this film is made for the gays. Definitely. Riley tells Trevor about what happened and uh, how she believes the box is responsible. So they track down Serena, who had hidden it in the warehouse. She's now in a hospital. Yeah, she's having some sort of respiratory issues, isn't she? Yeah. And uh, she hasn't got long left. No, bless her. She's not slain so much anymore. Um, Serena <laughs> tells them uh, that, what, that what they're looking for ended Voight's life and will end theirs too. She tries to take the box from uh, Riley, but is inadvertently cut by the blade. And Riley and Trevor just leave, and the box begins to solve itself again in the back of their car. Oh, um, Serena describes um Voigt as uh, a very cruel man, and he referred to the Cenobites as angels. He said angels he used to call them. You'd think a devil would know a devil, which mm-hmm. I thought was I quite I quite like that. It yeah. was, it was um, almost poetic. Yeah. Without being convoluted and boring. Like judgment. <laughs> like judgment. 
Um, back in the hospital, we get a really nice nod to uh, Hellraiser 2, where she's wheeled through. And uh, as she's wheeled through, the hospital's changing, the walls are changing, and the Cenobites appear. Yes. She tries to run from them, but she's... Ah, you love. Yeah. She tries to run, but she's cornered and taken away by them. She runs... I mean, God bless her. She runs a lot better than I thought she would. Mm -hmm. Considering she's on, you know, death's door. Yeah. Um, but yeah, props to you, Mama. Uh, and this is where I first noticed the soundtrack to this film is fucking so good. I really love the soundtrack. I love how it took little bits from the original score and threw it in there. Yeah. They're the only bits that I really remember, if I'm being perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, everyone expects that. They've listened to other episodes, it's fine. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Chris Barker, the... Uh... The uh, the man who does not hear soundtracks. Well, post post nineties. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I hear great soundtracks. Well, Riley visits Voigt's abandoned mansion, uh, finding his journals and learning that the box has multiple configurations, each of which requires a victim to be marked by the box's blade for the Cenobites to take. Nice little addition added. I don't mind it. It's something that makes it a little different. Maybe it's a little elaborate, you know, um, but I'm okay with it because it does do something different. And it, But it's not completely, you know, out there. Yeah. Just, um, it, allows, it, up a it, little bit. it allows for a bigger body count. Yeah, just, you know, not, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. No. If you can add a few sparkles and maybe a blue streak on there. On completion, uh, the box allows its holder to receive a gift from Leviathan, Ooh. the entity that rules over Hal. Riley sees an apparition of Matt. She hugs him, but is horrified when she looks in the mirror to discover he has no skin. Is it really you? Do you want it to be me? don't know why I made that romantic. I know, skin. yeah. Um, <laughs> for camp. I was going for camp, but um, it sounds romantic. Anyway, carry on. Trevor, Colin and Nora arrive to take Riley home. Uh, whilst Riley explains her findings to Colin, the still living but mutilated Voight, who is hiding inside the walls, stabs Nora with the box. Uh, yeah. Nora? Who the fuck's Nora? The roommate. The roommate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you think that Nora had... An exceptionally British accent. She had a very British accent. Now I'm the actress, sure. no, Eva Hines, the actress is from London. Wow! But it felt like it was really put on. Yeah. <laughs> like really strong. She really made a point about having a British <laughs> like, accent. Really, <laughs> but it's not like the rest of the cast sounded really American. No. But she no. sounded really British. <laughs> but that that London, but like uh -huh. not not like um. Cockney, but that that London posh London, yeah. As as I would say, um, yeah. Nora, we barely knew ya, but she has what is probably my favorite scene in the film. That is true. They escape the mansion in the van, mm -hmm. uh, but Nora is taken by the Cenobites, and this scene is fucking amazing. It is so good. Yeah, this one scene is better than all of the sequels combined, apart from part two. The leader, the priest. Chains up Nora, 
taunts her, takes a pin out of her own head, sticks it through Nora's neck with great detail seen from the inside of her fucking throat. Mm. Uh, Chatterer pulls her down from the hooks, ripping the skin off her back, and that's it. It's giving... Is she the killer? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's great. The effects are great. Really unsettling. Mm. Um, but I feel like... Because we didn't know Nora. Yeah. It, I think it's a shame it, it was given to her. It feels less impactful from an emotional standpoint. Yeah. It, it is. It's very good. Very well done. But, I mean, I barely knew Nora. Yeah. Like, okay. But I think the main thing about this scene is just showing off that performance by Jamie Clayton because her screen presence, as soon as she enters, is like, okay, fucking chills. Like, she is incredible. Like, yeah. Like, she... It really... It's a perfect fit. It really is. It It's... Yeah, it it's her voice, the line delivery. This is gonna sound like it's not a compliment, but it's almost dead behind the eyes, but in an acting yeah. way. Yeah, you know, very stone based, very uh-huh. you know, which is what it's meant to be. Yeah, you know. The group realizes Nora's gone. They crash the van and walk back towards the mansion. Riley is confronted by the priest who offers to resurrect Matt if Riley chooses two more sacrifices. Riley refuses and is cut by the blade herself. Oh no. Now that she's marked, the priest commands Riley to choose two more sacrifices or become a victim herself. Yeah, I'd find two more. So I, I didn't really understand why two more sacrifices Bring was happening twice. More souls? Yeah, no, I understand that. But it's like, oh, I won't do it for Matt. I will then do it for yourself. Like, oh, okay. Do you understand what I yeah. mean? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, kind mm, of cut a little bit of that out. Uh, after Trevor is bitten by Chatterer, Riley solves the next configuration and stabs it. Chatterer gets torn to pieces as the next sacrifice. Yeah, and now this is the original, isn't it? Yeah. This is... Um, I could see why they chose Chatterer for it. Mm-hmm. So they could use a little bit of CGI in there. Um, but yeah, it looks fine. I just feel like, why would Chatterer get involved? If... Well, I mean, if all the Cenobites are getting involved. Yeah, no, I understand that. Why have they chosen now to get involved? When If Riley's finding two new sacrifices, why mm-hmm. are they getting involved now when they hadn't actually physically got involved before? True, but it them. does lead because it the... just puts them in the place to get stabbed. I just think it's a cheap writing. Do you understand what I mean? It does lead into the rest of the film, though, where the Cenobites are very much more. They're going to come after you and get you in this one. After this point. After this point. After yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was convenient for the plot. Yeah. I think it maybe could have been cut. Um, Riley and Colin leave Trevor to rest. Uh, but the first they go back to the mansion, realizing there's still doors designed to lock the Cenobites out, and from this point on, it kind of becomes a fun, sort of William Castle esque haunted house film almost, where the Cenobites are the the demons coming after them. I I, I thought that was really fun. 
Um, well, it's Night of the Living Dead, isn't it? Yeah. They're stuck inside whilst they're waiting. But they're all I just thought the mansion... Yeah, I thought the mansion was a really good setting for it. Well, it's 13 ghosts. Okay, well, I'd like to give the film <laughs> the compliments. So there you go, it's coming from me. Jesus Christ. Riley and Colin leave Trevor to rest. <laughs> hey, we enjoyed the 13 Ghosts remake, didn't we? Did we? Did we? Not as much as this, I don't think. <laughs> it's hard to remember. Exactly. But the house is given 13 Ghosts. Like, the ceiling and everything does remind me of that. Oh, is it? Yeah, I thought no, that was an insult. Uh, it's revealed that Trevor has been working for Voight to find people to sacrifice to the puzzle box. He has, and he's a bastard for it, isn't he? Uh-huh. Bastard. That will explain the nice apartment. It would, yeah. Yes. He's been daddy. doing it for the money. He's had his sugar daddy all along. Do you think he's going to pay my mortgage? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Riley and Colin trap a Cenobite, the Asphyx, uh, to become the last sacrifice. But Voight appears and stabs Colin with the <gasps> box. Um, yeah, so this is where we really see the Cenobites for the first time together, so you really see them in detail. Uh, And like I said earlier, it is giving Alien for me, rather than kinky S&M demon. Um, But I think that works, and if if that's in keeping with the novel, it's it's a nice way, again, to separate from the original. Yeah. Uh, Voight reveals that he sought new pleasurable sensations after completing all of his sacrifices, but his reward was a contraption attached to him that twists his nerve endings, leaving him in constant pain. And it is quite the contraption. It is. I mean, it's such a cool visual. Yeah, It's giving a bit sore, mm-hmm. isn't it? But I love the uh, the details on it. I love being able to see his sort of nerves being twisted yeah. and, and such. Yeah, I thought it was really, really cool. Yeah. So uh, he completes the final configuration and traps the Cenobites, demanding that they ask Leviathan to free him from his gift. Whilst Leviathan appears in the sky above the mansion, Riley retrieves the box and unlocks the steel doors, letting in the Cenobites. (gasps) The visual of Leviathan above the mansion is so good. Again, it feels like a Hellraiser 2 throwback, and it, it looks amazing. Yeah. Priest tells Voight that his reward cannot be revoked, but can be traded for a different reward. She offers him power, which he accepts. Riley saves Colin from torture by stabbing Trevor, choosing him as a new final sacrifice, and honestly deserved. Yeah, totally deserved. Love that visual of Trevor's skin being peeled off his mm-hmm. arm. Uh, we've said it before, and I'll say it again. The effects in this are really, really good. Yeah, yeah. Colin is, uh, yeah, he's released and Trevor is mutilated and dragged to hell. Drag race to hell. Voight is released from his contraption and healed, only to be immediately impaled with a large chain by Leviathan and lifted away when the priest says the iconic line, we have such sights to show you. Yes, and uh, she does it justice. She does. Definitely. Yeah. With the sacrifices completed, the Cenobites tell Riley they can resurrect Matt as a gift. And in a shocking turn of events, because obviously, you know, you think, oh, of course she's going to take that. Of course he's going to come back to life. She refuses. She refuses to have any gift because she knows it is always going to be twisted and tells him that she'll accept Matt's death. 
Yeah. Yeah, which is really interesting. The Cenobites tell her that by choosing to live with her guilt and loss, she has effectively chosen the gift of lament. And yeah. lament being a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So Riley's suffering has just begun and will be a mental or, or an emotional rather than a physical suffering like Trevor and Voight. Mm -hmm. So everyone is essentially punished yeah, in, in a way uh, for their mis misdoings, you know. And um, Riley will have to live with the fact that she is solely responsible for her brother's death. Uh -huh. I mean, fuck Nora's drag, of course. <laughs> um, who's Nora? Uh, <laughs> but I thought that was a really interesting part yeah. of the film because Hellraiser as a whole has really focused on physical suffering mm -hmm. and the visuals of these physical suffering. It's what the, the franchise is most yeah. famous for. But the emotional suffering, I thought it was an interesting mm -hmm. twist. And, um, you know, ultimately it goes back to, you know, Riley will be questioning her decisions, not just to, you know, open the box, but also the fact that she met Riley in a 12-step program. And if she had never partaken in drugs, it would never have gotten to this point. Yeah. You know, and I, I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, the box reverts to its cube lament configuration and the Cenobites disappear. See ya. As Riley and Colin leave the mansion, he asks her if she made the right choice and Riley remains silent. And then just when the film, you know, you think it's finished, we get to see inside Leviathan where Voight undergoes a brutal transformation into a new Cenobite and it is fucking brutal. Mm. Really saved the uh, nastiest scene for last. Uh, yeah, skin being ripped off. Yeah. Um, we do get a close-up of a knob. We, we do. We do. And I feel that gets ripped off. It does get ripped off. It does, yeah. yes. Yeah, he's had pins, certain pins are shoved into his face. Either side of his mouth's ripped open. It is nasty. And it is a great scene to end the film on. Yeah, I think it encapsulates everything that Hellraiser is about. Yeah. Um. Why didn't they just live at the mansion? Well, I mean, I'm sure there'd be complications with electric and water and stuff when they started all up. But... Oh. <laughs> yeah, they were like, mm, might as well just live there. Everyone, everyone else has been drag raced to hell. Yeah. You, know, you might as well, might as well just live there. It's a nice place. <laughs> Spruce it up. <laughs> everyone you know is dead anyway, so... Well, that's Hellraiser 2022. <laughs> yes, Hellraiser, the remake, 2022. Yeah. Now, when I first watched this, I thought it dragged in places. Uh, I had, like, a fair few complaints about it. But on this rewatch and analysing it for the podcast, I really fucking loved this film. It really... It sold me. This On this rewatch, it really sold me. The runtime went by fast. Does it need to be two hours? Probably not. But it went by a lot quicker. This time around, I love the acting and the effects and the soundtrack. Um, and it is just so nice and refreshing to actually have a fucking good Hellraiser film for the first time since 1988. 
Yes, I uh, mostly agree with what you're saying. Um, I thought the, the visuals were great. The gore was great, which is why we watched these films. I do feel like it did drag in parts. Some of it was rather dull. I don't think the characters were the best written uh, as a whole. Um, it didn't need to be two hours. But I loved the incarnation of the Cenobites. And I loved everything in it that made Hellraiser great. Yeah. You know, the gore, the... Um, Ridiculous moments, you know, the Cenobites. They're the things that we remember mm -hmm. from the Hellraiser, Hellraiser franchise. And I think it really did it justice. Like you said, you know, um, I thought that the priest was a great version of Pinhead. Yeah. You know, very Clyde Barker. And uh, I thought the, the actress did a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. And can you, I'm totally forgetting her name. Jamie Clayton. Jamie Clayton did a great job. So for ratings, I give it eight strong business women providing victims for their boss out of ten. Duh. I give it six. Why are you having sex at the most inappropriate times out of ten? Masterpiece trash is trash or basic. I'm none of the above for me. I think it's just a solid modern horror film, but it is a masterpiece compared to Hellraiser parts three to nine. That is very true. Um, I just fine. I think it's a yeah. fine film. It's available on DVD and video on demand. Yes, this one didn't it didn't get a Blu-ray release, but Judgment did. If you enjoyed this, I recommend checking out Evil Dead 2013. I completely agree with Gary. I can't think of any other film, Evil Dead 2013. Now let's get to the awards. Uh, and as anyone knows who's listened to the other Hellraiser episodes, we are only handing out awards to one film uh, with an overall winner. Biggest Queen... It's got to go to Riley, really, in the remake. Oh, okay. Why are you giving it to? The Priest in the remake. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. But it depends what you watch the film for. That's true. That's true. Uh, biggest gasp, I've got Voight's Cenobite transformation in the remake. I chose Nora's death in the uh, remake. Best dialogue, I have... Now, I know it's taken from the original, but for this film and for the line delivery from Jamie Clayton, I do have... We have such sites to show you. Okay, nice choice. Um, I went with, that cocksucker owes me two months' rent. <laughs> yeah, and for that's camp, Heather Langenkamp playing a swearing landlady in cheap leopard print in Horizon of Judgment. Heather Langenkamp. In cheap leopard print saying cocksucker. Heather Langen Camp. Langen Camp. Um, so if there's a winner, it's obviously the remake. I mean, let's not be silly here. Um, Ooh, now. Tonight, that sounds like a tie to me. No, I gave one more <laughs> to the remake. Um, jokes. <laughs> jokes. Now, it's time for our definitive ranking of the Hellraiser franchise. Y yes. You say definitive. Um, I get a little lost when it comes to some of them. So as it gets to the tail end of things, so the lowest uh, ranked ones, the yeah, it gets a little muddled for well, me. Lucky for you, we're starting at the tail end. Okay, um, so Fab. in at number eleven for me, and I really hope for you as well. How Razor Revelations? It's How Razor Revelations. One of the worst films ever made. Yes, it is. Number 10, I have Hellraiser Dada. I have Judgment. Wow. 
But and they're interchangeable. They're, they're half these star. these are so bad <laughs> half star films. Yeah, <laughs> apart from Revelations, which is really yeah. yeah. How is a judgment? Is at number nine for me. Dada at number nine for me. And at number eight is How Raise a Bloodline. Ooh, eight for me is Hellseeker. That's my number seven. Bloodline is my number seven. <laughs> and at number six is How Raise a How World. Hey! And at number six, How Raise a How World. And at number five is How Raise a Inferno. Uh, <laughs> I agree. And now I can guarantee our top four is going to be the same. Yes. And at number four is How Raise a Free, Hell on Earth. That's correct. And at number three... No, that was number four. And yeah. at number three is Hellraiser 2022. That's correct. And at number two is Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Oh, no. And in at number <laughs> one is, of course, Clive Barker's original horror masterpiece, Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Um, yeah. That's it. Let's be honest. Made For it. me personally, I will watch the first two... Again and again. The rest, not so much. And any fifth past Hellraiser 3, I will never watch again in my life. Yeah. Yeah. A bit as mol. Really just... Yeah, I'm sorry. I hope you've enjoyed these podcast episodes because I've had a terrible time. <laughs> <laughs> Free is... Hellraiser 3 is a trash to piece. There's some yeah. enjoyment to be found there. Yeah. Couple of beers with friends. I could definitely see myself revisiting the remake again. Um, but yeah, the first two are classics. And, you know, come on. There's no way to watch anything between just, four and there's nine no again. Point. <laughs> there's no point. They're not even camp. No. It's so sad. It's so sad where <laughs> the franchise went. And I'm, I'm very pleased that 2022 was a good, a decent film. A good yeah. film. Because it really was, oof, you know, and I'd, I'd hate for that to be Clive Barker's legacy. Mm. I, I, because, I'm excited to see. Even though he... obviously he didn't have anything to do with it, but yeah. it's always going to be Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Yeah. I'm excited to see where they go next. Now that we're in a good place. Do you think they'll go somewhere? I hope just so. Leave it I, I want to see more Jamie Clayton mm. in that role. True. Um... It was a big success, wasn't it? I mean, it was. I mean, people watched quite it quite high on streaming. Yeah, people liked it, so yeah. But it's one of those things with streaming. It lasts about a week, and then people forget. Yeah. Well, did you enjoy it? What's your favorite Hellraiser film? It's got to be the first one. We're Horror Court Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horror Court Trash on Twitter. I'm dead at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gaz925 on Instagram, and GazCruise92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And as Chris reminded you earlier on in the episode, we are Gasp Horror Fest across all social media, and our festival will be taking place on the 17th and 18th of June, yes, during Pride Month, at Courtplex in Manchester. Get your tickets. And uh, if you enjoyed what you heard here, uh, and if you weren't involved with the making of Hellraiser Judgment, Give us a rate, review, and subscribe on <laughs> iTunes and a like and follow on everything else. Please don't hate me. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just have to, I have to say how I feel. Tuesday, we are giving you the first of our guest episodes for this Pride Month. And we will be joined by returning guest Ben Simpson to discuss Norman J. Warren's Prey. Yes, love a guest episode. Really looking forward to that one. 
We'll be back same time, same place on Tuesday. Bye.